Hello. We're glad that you've joined us, and we hope that you're doing well. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And today, let's continue our exploration into some of the kings of Israel and Judah. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're informed that all Scripture is profitable for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. And there's a lot of great examples in the Old Testament to teach us about how God works with people. And we can learn some of the things that pleases God. And unfortunately, a lot of things that people have done that has incurred God's wrath. And we continue this today with Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, of whom we read in 2 Kings 21, 1-18 and 2 Chronicles 33, verses 1-20. through we have to understand the time frame that Manasseh lives in to understand the things that Manasseh does. His father, Hezekiah, had a lot of events take place during his reign that were quite momentous and traumatizing. And he reigned around 729 to 686 BCE. And his story is told in 2 Kings 17 through 20 and 2 Chronicles 29 through 32. We also have some history of Hezekiah's reign in Isaiah 36 through 39. And the momentous events really involved the Assyrian Empire. It was during the early years of Hezekiah's reign that the Assyrians finished off the Sumerians and the Israelites to the north. And that kingdom was exiled because they had persistently sinned against Yahweh. Hezekiah had rebelled against the king of Assyria. His father Ahaz had become a vassal of Assyria in order to uh, get the king of Assyria to defeat his enemies to the north. And... uh, So because of that, the Assyrians invaded Judah as well, and they devastated the land. They destroyed all of the fortified cities except for Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was only preserved by Yahweh's hand, as we can see in the first verses of Isaiah, Isaiah 1, 1 1-9. And so Judah was laid very low by these events. Hezekiah had restored soul service of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And the authors of Kings and Chronicles really make Hezekiah to be a great guy. And we have no reason to doubt that interpretation of who he is and what he had done. Because he made the temple in Jerusalem the center place of sacrifice again. He eliminated the service of other gods, restored the Passover observance, and also got rid of a lot of the high places all around the country of Judah. But yet at that time, in 2 Kings 18, in verse 22, the Rabshakeh, who is the, one, the leader of the Assyrians uh, under the king, but uh, providing the word of the king to the uh, men of Judah, uh, says, well, Is not Yahweh the God whose you know, service Hezekiah is removed from all these altars everywhere? As if somehow the events that were going on were divine retribution against Israel and against Judah specifically for what they had done in sinning against him by concentrating that service in Jerusalem. And so it's a fair question to ask how well those changes that Hezekiah made went over in Judah. Now, that happened around the year 701. And so Hezekiah continues to rule about 17 years after the trauma inflicted upon Judah. Uh, We believe Manasseh likely served as co-regent very soon after that, so about maybe four years after that, about 697, he begins co-regency. Uh, and then he rules a total of 55 years, until about 643. Uh, the longest reign of any king over Judah, and that's from 2 Kings 21-1 and 2 Chronicles 33-1. So when it comes to Manasseh's reign, 
the length of Manasseh's reign, uh, the Assyrian evidence of Manasseh as a loyal servant of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, and the archaeological evidence of a renewal of agriculture during that time point to a period of political stability and some economic recovery and restoration. But in scripture, Manasseh is not known for that. He is known for and condemned for his excessive and flagrant idolatry in 2 Kings 21, 1-18 and 2 Chronicles 33, 1-10. And we'll just read through the things he did according to the chronicler. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to serve the Baals, and made Asherahs, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of Yahweh, of which Yahweh had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in two courts of the house of Yahweh. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made he set in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers. If only they will be careful to do all all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom Yahweh destroyed before the people of Israel. So it's a very, very distressing picture painted by the chronicler that not only did Manasseh returned uh, to idolatry full throttle, but brought it even into the temple of Yahweh itself, and burned their ch- his son to Molech, and all kinds of other terrible things that was done by Manasseh. He also shed much innocent blood. And in fact, the ultimate indictment, as we saw there in the Chronicler, that he did war evil than the nations that Yahweh had destroyed from before the children of Israel. The whole reason why he was doing that, according to what we see in Genesis 15 and later on, is their idolatry, the sinfulness of the Canaanites, and the idea now that the people whom God replaced there, the Canaanites, his own people, the Israelites, are now doing even more sinful behaviors than they, is quite distressing. And that is why there is great condemnation brought upon the house of David for what Manasseh has done. There is no compassion and no hope of salvation, according to the king's author. We're told in Second Kings 21, beginning in verse 11, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah to sin with his idols, therefore thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the land of the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight, and have provoked me to anger since the day that their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. And so we see the doom for Judah was going to take place. 
and it would happen. Now, it would not happen in the time of his time. We're going to see why. It did not happen during his son Ammon time, which was short. Josiah proved to be a faithful king, so it did not happen in the days of Josiah, but it was in the days of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, that the, there would be defeats, there would be the beginning of the exile, and then there would be the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And all of that was decreed because of what happened by, in the days of Manasseh. The chronicler does not have such a distressing picture. Because of all of this sin, we're told in the chronicler, that the Yahweh brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And so... Sometime we see that earlier that you know uh, Esarhaddon considered Manasseh to be a faithful servant, but perhaps it was a slight moment of disobedience and uh, the quick coming of the army of Assyria that taught uh, Manasseh this lesson, and that's why he remained uh, such a faithful king. Or maybe the Assyrians just wanted to show their power around uh, to everybody else uh, why they should not try to rebel against them. And so, in that condition, the chronicler says that Manasseh wanted release. He, in verse 12, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of Yahweh his God and humbled himself before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. And so, because of this, we're told in verse 15, He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of Yahweh, and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem, and threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of Yahweh, and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people sacrificed at the high places, but only to Yahweh their God. And so we have this 180, this complete reversal. And also we're told Manasseh builds an outer wall to help fortify Jerusalem in the face of all that's gone on around it to make it more difficult to besiege. And so that's the story we get about Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And both the king's author and the chronicler speak harmoniously about Manasseh's idolatry. Uh, His ultimate end looks quite different in each book. And it's not that we should look at them as being contradictory, because there's no inherent contradiction. Both parts of the story can be reconciled to one another. The indictment of Manasseh's idolatry as the point of judgment that leads to Judah's exile makes sense. As we've seen in the chronology, it doesn't make sense for Ammon. Josiah is faithful. Uh, it type happens in the time of Josiah's children. It would be difficult to explain why God would not have just finished Judah off in the days of Manasseh himself, if that were his, his desire. Um, but that is explained by Manasseh's repentance. Because Manasseh's repentant, repented, um, Yahweh did not cast Judah into exile that generation. And that also explains why Manasseh can be the longest ruling, ruling Judean king, uh, which would be hard to explain if he were so evil. And so in Manasseh, we see how Judah grapples with traumatic events of the past, uh, an indictment of the future, and yet repentance in the moment. Manasseh rebels against his father's restoration of Yahweh's service because it seemed like everything had gone wrong in Judah because of it. But he learned through his experience that Yahweh is the only God, and therefore he repented. But after such evil was done, that Yahweh condemned Judah to exile. 
So what can we learn from this example of Manasseh, son of Hezekiah? Well, the first thing we learn is the danger of rebellion. The portrayals of Hezekiah in Manasseh in Kings and Chronicles lead to the conclusion, it's fairly clear, that Manasseh is rebelling strongly against the path of his father. He was co-regent for a while. He saw what his father did. He saw how he, his father had gotten rid of all the other service of the other gods and to the high places for Yahweh, and he concentrated all in Jerusalem. And what happened at that time? Well, during that time, the Assyrians came and devastated the land, left Jer- Jerusalem as the last city kind of caged up, uh, led to severe downturns in, in, in politics and economics, great instability, uh, one of the greatest trials and moments of trauma experienced in the kingdom of Judah. So sure, the later authors of Kings and Chronicles will speak highly of Hezekiah, and we can see how Hezekiah is commendable uh, for the things that he did, but in the, it's the beauty of hindsight that we can see how that correlation was not causation. That those events happened in the days of, of Hezekiah as a consequence of what his father Ahaz had done. Uh, however, um, that does not mean that Yahweh was angry at Hezekiah for what Hezekiah had done and thus led to that particular circumstance. Manasseh, however, sees the correlation as causation. And so he not only restores the previous service, but he goes and finds every god he can to serve them. And he goes and does some of the most horrendous things and even brings it into the temple of Yahweh. Now, you could say that perhaps that's just way of Manasseh being rebellious and just showing he's different from his father, and that very likely there are many of the rural entrenched nobles who perhaps wanted uh, that uh, religious service back in their areas and things of that nature. But in Jeremiah 44, we'll see an example of this in, in the ultimate exile, where there were people uh, who saw the experiences of, of, of Judah uh, immediately in the days of Hezekiah and in the days uh, after Josiah as, as a, a testimony to, well, maybe the idolatry is working for us. And the problem was not that we committed idolatry, but the opposite, that we stopped serving the Queen of Heaven or we stopped serving the Baals, and then all these bad things happened. And um, it's very tempting logic, but correlation is not causation. And so, whatever the reason, we see the fruit of the rebellion that's illustrated in the days of Manasseh. It's a betrayal of covenant. It's an excessive amount of sinfulness. And therefore, God condemned them. Did it lead to some political peace? Sure. Did it lead to economic prosperity? Probably. But it it came at the cost of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness. And therefore, it didn't matter how much political stability and economic uh, recovery they had at that moment. It was all going to be overthrown and all for naught uh, within a hundred years. And that's true to this day. There are a lot of people who rebel against what they think are the strictures of their ancestors. Some people, they fully reject the faith of their parents and accept whatever culturally acceptable alternative is available, some variant of scientism or secularism in our own day. For others, this may be a reversion away from what previous generation did in an attempt with a solidarity with previous generations. Well, maybe you don't do what your parents did, but you try to be more like your grandparents or great-grandparents as a result. However it may end up, though, uh, it's still rebellion. And it's rebellion against what they were taught and experienced. And that is why we need to use discernment. And, and to make sure that our motivation in all things, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 10.31, is to glorify God. And that we're doing what we're doing because we're trying to glorify God, not because we're trying to be different uh, from what our ancestors did. Because Hezekiah was right to change course from his ancestors, and he went back to what God had just established, but Manasseh had no such justification, but later on Josiah would certainly have that justification. 
And so we ultimately need to act in faithfulness, not rebelliousness. But we also learn from Manasseh the opportunity that exists for repentance. Of all the Old Testament Israelite characters, it's Ahab and Manasseh that are the most wicked sinners. But interestingly, both of them are said to have repented in the biblical text. Ahab, in 1 Kings 21, 25-29, it didn't save his life, but it meant that the end of his, uh, uh, the line of kings would not be in his days, but in the days of his son. And Manasseh in 2 Chronicles 33, 10-13. It helps to show us that there is no sinner so thoroughly corrupted that they're too far gone and not able to come to repentance. And that's what Paul's trying to get across in 1 Timothy 1, 12-17. That in him the grace of God was shown the most. That he was a persecutor, a blasphemer, a reviler, but uh, Christ came to save sinners, of whom he is the chief. He was the foremost. And so it shows that there is no sin that's too great or, or beyond uh, God's ability to um, forgive. Uh, in Christ, there's nothing that, that cannot be redeemed. But we also can see clearly that while repentance does not, certainly can restore one to God, it doesn't obviate the consequences of sin. Yes, Ahab repented, but God's decree about the destruction of his house stayed firm. It just didn't happen in his generation. Manasseh repented and had a long life and a long uh, reign over Judah, but within a hundred years of his death, they were all exiled uh, because uh, the decree had been made. And so absolutely, uh, we can repent of sin and be forgiven of it. But that doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. And there are a lot of sins that have consequences. And even if we're forgiven of those sins, we may still have to bear the consequences of sin. That might be prison time. That might be uh, pain in relationships. It might be illnesses. It could be a certain set of temptations or things like that. And it's a good to remind us that forgiveness is freely offered when, it's, when we repent. But it's always better to avoid sin in the first place. As Paul tries to make clear in Romans chapter 6. We look at Manasseh and his his prayer that we're told about only in passing in Second Chronicles thirty through nineteen. His prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and all these other things that he had done were in the book of the Chroniclers Chronicles of the Seers. Uh, that book doesn't exist anymore. At least we don't have a copy of it, so we don't know exactly what Manasseh would have said. However, there is a lot of interest in this moment and what perhaps Manasseh would have said. And there is a prayer that's gone about uh, being called the Prayer of Manasseh. It's not inspired. It's, it's, it's an apocryphal work. Maybe it was written sometime around the time of Jesus. Uh, but it's been treasured ever since as a great work of piety. And even though it's not inspired, it's worth considering uh, as just a, as something to think about as we pray to God. Uh, just like a lot of the songs that we sing aren't inspired but have great messages, the Prayer of Manasseh is a beautiful prayer. O Lord Almighty, God of our ancestors, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their righteous offspring, you who made heaven and earth with all their order, who shackled the sea by your word of command, who confined the deep and sealed it with your terrible and glorious name, at whom all things shudder and tremble before your power, for your glorious splendor cannot be borne, and the wrath of your threat to sinners is unendurable. Yet immeasurable and unsearchable is your promised mercy, for you are the Lord Most High, of great compassion, long-suffering, and very merciful, and you relent at human suffering. O Lord, according to your great goodness, you have promised repentance and forgiveness to those who have sinned against you, and in the multitude of your mercies you have appointed repentance for sinners so that they may be saved. 
Therefore you, O Lord, God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who do not sin against you, but you have appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. For the sins I have committed are more in number than the sand of the sea. My transgressions are multiplied, O Lord, they are multiplied. I am not worthy to look up and see the height of heaven because of the multitude of my iniquities. I am weighted down with many an iron fetter, so that I am rejected because of my sins, and I have no relief. For I have provoked your wrath and have done what is evil in your sight, setting up abominations and multiplying offenses. And now I bend the knee of my heart, imploring you for your kindness. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned and I acknowledge my transgressions. I earnestly implore you, forgive me, O Lord, forgive me. Do not destroy me with my my transgressions. Do not be angry at me forever or store up evil for me. Do not condemn me to the depths of the earth. For you, O Lord, are the God of those who repent, and in me you will manifest your goodness. For, unworthy as I am, you will save me according to your great mercy. And I will praise you continually all the days of my life. For all the host of heaven sings your praise, and yours is the glory forever. Amen. Now, sure, he did not know what would happen at the end of that prayer, perhaps, and maybe he thinks a little too highly of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who certainly had transgression in life, uh, but repented and received forgiveness. But we can still derive some encouragement and strength by considering them and considering that kind of message and, and the need that we have when we sin to really humble ourselves before God and realize that salvation isn't cheap that it may be freely offered, but that it was a terrible price to be paid, and we should not make light of that, and make light of how our sin separates us from God. So we have now seen the life of Manasseh, son of Hezekiah. Whatever reason, he wildly rebelled against the ways of Yahweh, and against the ways of his father Hezekiah. That his great idolatry led to the sons of exile for Judah. But he had to come to grips with Yahweh as the one true God. And when he repented, maintained his kingdom and reigned longer than any other king of Judah. And that's why we do well learn from his example, that rebellion will never bring us to the will of God, that no one is beyond repentance and forgiveness, and that sin has consequences. But nevertheless, let us come to the same recognition that Manasseh did, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true creator God. And let us believe in Jesus' his Son and repent of all of our sins and be restored in a relationship to him. We hope that you've been encouraged by discussing Manasseh, and if you have any questions about Manasseh, about other subjects, maybe you would like to learn more about becoming a Christian, or maybe you just need to talk to somebody, have a prayer request, or something like that, please let us know. Please contact me through my website at theverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Or you can find out more about the Adventist Church of Christ online at VenticeChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on Facebook, Google+, Instagram, Meetup, and Twitter, mostly at Venice Church. We again thank you and have a great day.